episode of What is Black podcast. This episode is a special live episode that was recorded a couple weeks ago. It was a conversation that I wanted to have after reflecting on the last few months. Faced with the challenges of COVID-19 disrupting our daily lives and routines. I realized that COVID-19 has not only brought to light the divides that exist in our country, but it's also highlighted even more so the issues of racism and health inequities. Our world has been turned upside down by COVID-19. But the recent news of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others um, has brought the conversation of racism to the forefront. Given these uncertain and and challenging times, I wanted to take a chance um, to reflect with my colleagues and guests and and do a check-in about how are our children doing and coping during these unprecedented times and discuss ways that we might be able to use the lessons we've learned to date to create a better, just, and equitable world for all our children. Please know that this is only a snapshot of the full conversation that I had with my guests a few weeks ago, but I still think this snapshot is a great indication of the opportunities that we have. I, I speak to some great leaders and great intellects during this episode, so I'm, I'm hopeful that this conversation will resonate with you, will be enlightening, um, and I hope will make a difference. So let me introduce um, the guests that you'll hear um, on today's recording. First is Dr. Elizabeth Barnard. She's an assistant professor at UCLA. She's a Cuban-American born and raised in Los Angeles. She's passionate about improving health outcomes of vulnerable children, and her research focuses on youth involved in the juvenile justice system, commercially sexually exploited youth, and youth undergoing family separation and reunification. Dr. Nathan Chamillo is a pediatrician and the Minnesota Medicaid Medical Director. His advocacy work with Reach Out and Read, Minnesota, and Minnesota Doctors for Health Equity has been recognized by the City of Minneapolis Department of Civil Rights. Next is Dr. Monique Jindal, who is an internal medicine pediatrician at Johns Hopkins Medical Institution. Her research focuses on the impact of racism on health outcomes. She created a racism in medicine curriculum that has been taught to residents for the past three years and has also conducted research on the impact of policing and child health. Dr. Jasmine Zapata is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics Division of Neonatology and Newborn Nursery, and is also an affiliate assistant professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, and she's also a faculty director there. In addition, she's an author, speaker, and health educator. So I have a great lineup of panelists for um, today's discussion and conversation, and I hope you really um, enjoy the conversation and we'll talk more in upcoming um, upcoming episodes about this uh, about these topics, COVID-19, racism, and how we can move forward to improve the health and well-being of our children. Enjoy the listen. They're just like us, the way the way you might be dealing with what's going on compared to me, you know, it, mm-hmm. kids are the same way. And I just, I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Um, and we think that there's just this recipe to make it better for them or to make it right. And 
And so I, that really resonates with me um, from both of you. And then I think also just the, um, the idea that we have to have these conversations. I think that's another thing that um, I, at least with my patients and families we've been talking about, um, some of them have asked me, you know, should I talk about this with them? And um, so we've talked a lot about how, you know, kids are like sponges. And so they're going to, they're going to get socialized about race, whether um, you influence it or not. And so all the more, you know, all the more reason to have these conversations at, you know, at whatever level they feel comfortable and kind of shepherd them through it in the way that they feel is, is best for their child. Yes, I agree. I forgot to mention a, a third kid. I have a two-year-old at home as well. And so now she's running around the house talking about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and um, we took her to one of the protests in the car and she was like trying to get out the car because she wanted to run around with everybody. So that's so true, though, that they're going to be th our, this young generation growing up. This is going to be what's normal to them. And, and that actually brings me a little bit of hope that this is just going to be normal to talk about conversations about race and things like that. So I totally agree. I'd like to um, talk for a minute about my patients at Juvenile Hall. So correctional health care tends to lag behind the quality of delivery of care, the technology that's available lags behind what's available in the community. Um, so I'm realizing, you know, as we talk about this, I think that Race, you know, racism is something that I would talk about in a primary care setting outside of juvenile hall. Um, when I was first starting out my research career, I did a research project in juvenile hall where I interviewed kids and I asked them, explain to me why so many kids in your community are ending up in juvenile hall. And, you know, got, did the interview, sat and analyzed the data. And then I got, I was like, this is great. They're not, they're not experiencing racism. They're not saying racism is a problem. And then I sat with my data a little bit more. And then it was like this moment where my heart broke. because so I was like, no, this means that there's structural racism and they're not saying it or seeing it and they're blaming themselves. Um, so 96% of the kids in LA County's, Los Angeles County's juvenile justice system are youth of color. Um, it took many times for me to go there to see the first fair-skinned person that was there. Um, and I haven't heard anything in the correctional health community about talking about race. You know, I'm not in, in correctional health care because the kids have so many mental health needs. It's, it's not like community pediatrics where we're often playing mental health provider and we prescribe the ADHD meds. You know, you really, it's mm -hmm. very medical focused. Um, it, they call it medical. And if there's any mental health needs, they're seeing the psychiatrist or psychologist. But so what I'm, I guess, thinking aloud and posing to the group, and maybe Monique, we should talk at some point, but how should we be talking about racism um, in a setting like that where the kids are already so vulnerable and the issues are so beneath the surface, you know, to the point where the youth might not feel comfortable talking about it or might not even be seeing it? And I think you all bring up a thank you for, for continuing the discussion. Oh, you guys are great. So to that point about how, how we in medicine really talk about racism, right? I think, um, Dr. Nate, you, you have your article here from Health Affairs, right? Talking about rationing of health resources and how um, racial bias might also influence how that rationing of resources might occur. So that had me thinking again about um, 
Dr. Dr. Elizabeth's question about how do you really have those conversations, knowing that even in the medical field, right, we don't we haven't really um, talked about or really deconstructed the whole issue of how race impacts how we're trained, right? And our the way we view and treat people based on um, not really talking about race or implicit bias. So I just wanted to get your perspective and then hear hear from the rest of the rest of the the, the group. Yeah, um, I, I think that mirrors um, something that you know we heard out Jackie from one of our colleagues, Dr. Allison Briscoe Smith, um, last week when we were talking about this, uh, and she she kind of used the analogy of you know you get when the plane's crashing, you got to put the oxygen on yourself first before you can help others, and um, I think. Uh, that's something that we get a little bit caught up on in medicine is that um, we see, oh, the police are doing something wrong, the schools are doing something wrong, and here's what you need to do to fix it. When, uh, like you point out, Jackie, uh, medicine has a lot of uh, structural racism embedded within our education and our care delivery and who has access and who doesn't. Um, uh, that I'd be addressing first. And, and so um, in that piece in particular, one of the things I was really trying to push for is, you know, by highlighting how these decisions weren't considered when we're talking about scarce resource allocation in COVID, so like who gets ventilators and who doesn't, um, all policy and all decisions that we're making in medicine should really be going through what we call like a racial equity lens. That's using critical race theory to ask, how does race impact this, right? And so like from the start, yeah, uh, of that, you have to be looking at. Uh, do you even are you even looking at, at the data? Are you looking at the questions? Kind of similar to what um, Dr. Bart was, you know, realizing when she was looking at her data. Was she asking the right question, um, or was she looking at it in the way to kind of see how racism works? Um, and then from there, you kind of make uh, an outline of steps of how does any decision or so any action or inaction, how does that you know impact? Um, uh, racial racial disparities that we see in racial outcomes, and then there's a level of accountability at the end there that's really important. That often is like the last step that gets missed uh, when we're talking about it. We'll identify the problem, we'll kind of admire it, um, but we won't actually have accountability to, for who it is to to fix it. And so, um, you know, when I think about you know primary care, it's really hard uh, even to talk about racism because who who's uh, how do you have that conversation when you're talking to a group that just hasn't even done the work themselves? And then, so I think a lot of it is how do we get pediatricians and primary care providers to uh, understand how racism works in their lives and so that they can then talk to parents about it and then parents have to do the work so then they can talk to their kids about it. Right. Um, and so I think, um, uh, cause you can actually do potentially do more harm if you start talking about race without having done that work. And then, uh, you have, um, particularly if you're talking directly to kids and, and kids who are you know, particularly, you know, um, vulnerable because of so structural racism. I think there could be a lot of harm just starting up these conversations without having done a lot of that work yourself first. So um, Dr. Jasmine, what are your thoughts and perspectives? And then I'll go to Monique. <sighs> I don't have any, I don't, I don't know. I, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, can you go back to the original question? I think the original question really comes down to what I what I heard from what Dr. Barnett Barnett was asking is how do we really, you know, in her in her 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 work with um, juvenile justice, right? How does she really have that conversation 
about race, right, in that context. But then for me, it's almost even a broader context, right? There are these specializations that we have in medicine, even with even within pediatrics, where it's very important to talk about these topics, either with very young, you know, young children and young families up to adolescence, right? But then the question really is, how do we how do we do that knowing that even the way that we're trained, right? Even though we're we're doctors of color, right? Or black doctor, however you want to identify yourself, right? The the only education I have going into medicine regarding race and racism is what my parents taught me. And so that's what I'm really trying to, to get at. Like, how do we how do we really address that? Knowing yeah. that the system that, and I think Dr. Nate did a good job of summarizing it, knowing the systems that we have set up, right? Many of us, and I think your work, um, Dr. Jasmine, is that you do a lot of um, engagement with with young women, young Black women, and, and empowering empowering them. We don't tend to technically see that as medicine or healthcare, but it is. So that's why I wanted to kind of... Right, right. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of get to get to how do we really do that if yes. we're not really necessarily trained to do that? Um, yes. And and really kind of move the needle. Okay. Okay. So I would say to the question about like especially when it's um one of the biggest things I guess that I have learned over the years is just kind of keeping it to the basics of just meeting young people or everything in my, yeah, meeting young people where they're at. So if you're working with a young person, even if it is in one of the, um, you know, they have other diagnoses or already deal with anxiety, depression, or other things, just keeping open-ended questions saying, how are you, there's a lot going on in the world. Tell me how you're feeling about that. If they start talking about some chores at the house or they're mad at their parents, then you just follow them along that track. If they say, man, I watched that 10 minute video of George Floyd's murder and I'm traumatized, then go down that path with them, but don't force it on them. Just kind of keep it open-ended and wherever that path leads, just follow them wherever they want to go and whatever they want to talk about. My little nine-year-old daughter, we we're on some deep, level conversations about segregation and I taught her about implicit bias and like she's asking all these deep questions and my son is just like hey they put Black Lives Matter on Fortnite they're like totally it's totally different conversations so you really just have to meet um meet the young person wherever they're at and then the other thing that I've learned so I'm board certified in pediatrics but also preventive medicine and public health so I I am so passionate about getting outside the clinic walls to have conversations like these. Um, um, Only 20% of health outcomes is based on what happens in the hospital and clinics. The other 80% is based on one's personal health behaviors, their environment, and social economic factors. So everything that we do, all this education that we have and all these trainings and certifications and boards and all that, it only impacts 20% of health outcomes. So that's what made me go into the field of preventive medicine and public health and look at innovative ways you can impact young people. Now, I know that when I was going through um, my primary care rotations during residency, I always remember the, what is it, the sex rock and roll or the sex drugs and rock and roll talks, where basically you go into your doctor's office, you get kicked, the parents get kicked out for the most awkward 10 minutes ever, where it's like, I haven't seen this kid in a whole year, or it might be my first time. And I'm asking about all kinds of details of their life. Sometimes they'll open up, but even if they do, it's not like you have a long-term relationship and it's one-on-one, it's kind of awkward. So a couple years ago, I started 
doing these sleepovers with girls that I knew personally from the community that were in my personal network. We would have about 10 to 15 girls and we would do sleepovers. We would play games. We would have prank calls. We would have pillow fights eat all kind of sugar and candy, which I should not have an endorsed as a pediatrician, but we did it anyway. So then at like two in the morning, we would have like girl chat. They would just spill their guts for hours and hours about all kind of things. And I was like, I was able to insert, you know, like they would be teaching each other and I would see how like, wow, they impact each other so much more than anything that I could have said. But if a question came up that was medically related, I was the voice of reason, you know, I was older and I could kind of insert that. But group-based models of care is something that's really lightened fire and taken off. We see group-based models of care um, with the um, OB population with like centering pregnancy, group-based models of prenatal care. But I truly believe the future in talking about some of this stuff is not just one-on-one, but getting outside the clinic walls and talking to them in different environments where they feel most comfortable. And then also there's like a peer element of it as well. So that's just a little bit of um, what I've been doing. And now we've taken that on tour where we don't do sleepovers anymore, but we do girls empowerment events based on a book. I girls empowerment book. I wrote where we have music games. We have, um, I had performing artists come with me and do a concert. And then we would do breakout sessions. Oh my gosh. And those breakout sessions, I felt like I had more of an impact than I ever, ever did as a a medical doctor talking about this stuff by me just getting out in innovative, crazy ways. And we've been in churches and hair salons and schools and parks um, at the lake doing all these events. So I think it's all that to say there's so much power in like breaking, dismantling systems that have been set up to oppress us, like that's not the system. The tr- traditional healthcare system is n- not what works for every young person. You have to be willing to get out the clinic walls and shake things up to have these conversations. So that's what I would say is my best piece of advice for this. Great. And what about you, Dr. Monique? You know, I think um, what we're getting at is doctors tend to put themselves on this pedestal. Um, and, you know, back to what Dr. Nate was saying. Um, we all have so such deep unlearnings that we need to do. Um, and each and every one of us, even those who are steeped in this work every day, you know, I have moments where I'm like, wow, did I really think that? Or is that like what just went through my mind? And we're all socialized in this racist society and um, we have deep, deep unlearnings to do. And, you know, when you have your surgeon general saying that, you know, well, if black people didn't smoke and drink alcohol, they wouldn't be affected by COVID. You know, you you really have to wonder um, kind of how we look at ourselves and how we can, how we can be a little more humble about our place and our work that we need to do um, before we start talking to our patients and families about this. And, and, you know, I don't necessarily think that one, they have to happen like one, you do all this learning and you get the best that you can be and, you know, become anti-racist and then do this. But there is a level of humility and transparency, I think, that has to be there. And I think doctors really struggle with that because we're, we're used to just, you know, we're right. You know, we, ta- we tell you what we think is best and then, you know, that's it. And so I think, um, I think that's part of it. And then to Jasmine, to your point, I think I've had similar experiences in the youth organization that I work with, you know, 
but it also goes back to this piece of humility. You know, why do we expect children who see us once a year to tell us their their deepest traumas, their their moments of when they've been completely dehumanized, um, and we expect them to just open up to us in a rushed uh, thirty minute visit, and so. Um, yeah, my whole point is we, we just are, we, we got to check our humility and um, remember that we are, we have been raised in the same racist society as our patients and our families. So Dr. Elizabeth, you talk about a, a community, right? A population of youth that really are underserved, right? And also in, in many ways neglected. We, when we think about youth, we don't really, we sort of you know, you know, if our kids aren't getting straight A's, right? I'm in the I'm in the context where my kids have to get straight A's, right? We're thinking about that going the college track, but there are some kids that who who have a deep, you know, a deviated track, you know, so to speak. So how how are you working with your colleagues to try to address the needs of the youth that you serve in the juvenile justice system? That's that's a great question. So clinically. You know, as I, I said, the, the role is, is very medical, and I think that's what most correctional health doctors do. You have asthma, I'm going to make sure you have the right albuterol, or make sure if you need a, a everyday medicine, you have it. Um, I think a lot of us, when we interact with the youth, we do our very best to give them that sense of hope and guidance, and, and I believe in you, but, you know, it's the, uh, the relation that we often don't have very much continuity, so I think that's very challenging. Um, going back to what Jasmine is saying, I think that so much happens on the public health side, the, the bigger picture of what we can do outside of these clinic walls. So to give you an example, I'm, I, it's, in my policy work, I think we really need to deconstruct, pull apart the juvenile justice system, you know, kind of in triage mode because it can be so damaging for kids to be there. Um, and so for an example, I did research in California that contributed to the development and passage of a law that set a minimum age of juvenile justice jurisdiction. So before this law passed, there was a child of any age could be in the juvenile justice system. And we got data from the California Department of Justice and the youngest kid in the juvenile, referred to the juvenile justice system was a five-year-old boy. The data said five-year-old black boy, and he was referred for a curfew violation. And the data showed, not surprisingly, that there were disparities and that the racial disparities that were present in the justice system are present at even a higher rate at these youngest ages. Um, and I was not willing to wait around for society to become unracist and for the justice system to become unracist. And so now that California has a minimum age law of 12, it forces this each county to figure out what am I going to do with this 11 year old? What is the best way to meet his needs? What, how does the school system need to respond? So that's kind of an example of how you can create structural change on a, on a kind of emotional philosophical level and sort of responding to your question, Jackie, also about sort of what needs to change. I feel like one of the things is as painful as this moment is, what, what, what is beautiful about it is there is, I, I feel like this kind of collective hope, or this phrase that I'm hearing of changing hearts. We need to make these institutional differences, the policy differences, but that's going to happen when people change their hearts and when their vision changes. 
And I think, I mean, I think that's an important point. Um, but it's interesting. I feel like I, I still am struck, struck by the, the, the history, right? We've had this historical context of um, protest and educational change and these slow reforms in the political system. And they go, they go back and forth depending on who's, who, who is leading, right? Whatever political party. Um, and at some point, right, you figure, well, there's been enough people, there's like a list of people who have been murdered, right? There've been a list of people of, we have our health out, poor health outcomes based on, you know, race, right? Race as a proxy for these health outcomes. And I'm like, at some point, like, why haven't hearts been changed yet? But, you know, but this, that's the part that I, I'm hopeful, but at the same time, I, I feel sometimes jaded as well, because I'm thinking like, how, how much worse can it, can it get, right, before we start to make a change? And then I think about, well, I think sometimes people think that, well, um, African-Americans have, you know, we're doctors, right? Those who are us that identify as African-American or first generation or whatever, whatever marginalized group you've made it, right? You become successful. And I feel like that's the checkoff. Okay. Well, there are people of different socioeconomic classes and marginalized groups that have made it and that's it. And that's all. We don't need to do anything else because you can get an education and become a doctor. And I feel like that so misses the boat. So I'm just getting back to, I'm sorry being long-winded, but I, I just getting back to the point about, I, I, I hope there's hope, right? I, and I hope that people are changing, their hearts are changing, but I feel like there's gotta be more. I just don't know what that more has to, has to be. Um, so again, really getting to this conversation, you know, the, really the crux of this conversation of what do we need to do to make, make the changes, right? If you could, if you could see a different, Knowing what we know now, knowing what's happened now, and hopefully we're changing some hearts because there's interracial coalitions that are on board. They're hopefully, you know, uh, Minneapolis, right, is changing their laws about policing. Um, what else can we do to, or how would you envision the new thing, right, after people's hearts have changed? How can we change these structures? I don't know. If Dr. Jasmine, if you have an idea, because again, with our public health, preventive, preventive health lens, if you could, what are you envisioning? What are you hoping will be next? One thing that I'm really hoping will be next. So you said after we change hearts, how can we change structures? Yes. One thing that I personally feel very strongly about is, uh, combating the racial wealth gap because I feel that that contributes a lot to like, that's a root cause to a lot of the issues that we see. Um, the changing the wealth gap and then also seeing more people of color in positions of leadership, but all, but, but even bigger than that, the wealth gap, bringing wealth back into, and specifically talking related to the, especially right now, the focus and is, uh, Black black people. I'll just be frank and say that a lot of times when we say people of color, it's very generalized. But right now, I'm talking specifically about in the black community, because 
Um, we need to own more land. We need to own our own businesses, have our own billion dollar endowments so that we can fund our own people when, as it relates to like nonprofits. I see all the time nonprofits, different smaller groups fighting for money or begging for money from larger white institutions um, that still retain the power and pull the strings on these organizations. I'm just going to say it like it is. Also, there's so many people who worry about what they're going to say because like, oh, am I going to get fired from my job or how is that going to work? But what if, what if you're owning your own business? What if you have your own, your own multi-million dollar real estate portfolio so that you can manage that? What if you buy up the whole block so people who are homeless or need help, you're able to do that? I think that's, that's the one thing that I want to see. Um, you know, I look a lot about what happened um, in Tulsa and the destruction of Black Wall Street and all of that. And I feel like, man, what if that would have never happened, that destruction? Where would we be now if we still kept building upon that? There's little pockets, different places in our country of that. But what if we can really take that to the next level? And and I know that, rep, well, I'm not going to say it will never happen, but it's not looking the greatest for reparations right now. Um, I do believe in reparations in some type of way. It doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon, but I hope that there is a massive um, uh, a transfer of wealth into the black community as a result of this. That's one, just one, I have a lot of things I want to see change um, with defunding or I, I'll be clear about this, but like re restructuring where money, like defunding how much money police departments have and rerouting it into other things of the community. I want to see um, diversity, more diversity in the healthcare field. Lots of things I want to see change, but one of the biggest ones is uh, a transfer of wealth. Dr. Nate? Yeah. Um, I think that like uh, uh, Jasmine said, there's, there's a lot of things uh, on this list. And I, I think the underpinning between the last couple of comments is, is really a reconciliation of the, the sins of slavery, the sins of sins of Jim Crow, the sin, sins of um, you know Native uh, and Indigenous uh, folks uh, be, uh, having their land taken and and being dehumanized as well. You you look at other societies uh, like Germany uh, and their reconciliation uh, with Holocaust, South America, uh, South Africa, sorry, and their reconciliation with apartheid, and we just haven't done that work here in the United States. And so I think if we really are changing hearts and minds, the, the hope is at the very least we can get to that first step. And I think part of that um, conversation, you know, reparations of some sort need to be, you know, part of that conversation. Um, I will, I might differ a little bit in, in the, in the sense that, you know, um, I really do believe that there's a lot of uh, connection between capitalism and racism. And, um, and so uh, I think um, when we're thinking of how uh, to, to repair and, and move forward together, it's, it's how can we um, uh, build a place where, you know, it's not solely driven by capitalism because of many of, of the inequalities that capitalism naturally uh, creates. And, and, and there has to be uh, ways to kind of integrate that and still have opportunity, but have uh, equity uh, for all. And, and certainly Dr. Um, Ibrahim Kendi in his book, How to Be Anti-Racist, really uh, does, I think, a good job of unpacking that. And there's been lots of others who've unpacked that as well. And then lastly, I think just for our conversation here about it, medicine in particular and policy, there was a really uh, great piece in the Health Affairs blog by the editor of Health Affairs who talked about the social determinants of death. 
uh, and and really how the one thing that hasn't been really talked about in a lot of these discussions is power and uh, how that we're talking about, um, you know, uh, all these companies that are talking about making their Black Lives Matter posts and uh, making all these statements, but they're not talking about how they're going to restructure or share power with communities that are most affected. And um, certainly one of the most, um, you know, encouraging and promising programs we've had in our Medicaid program is one that um, shares power with uh, um, uh, mothers, um, uh, African-American and American Indian mothers and, and groups and, and find some of these, you know, centering programs and other programs that are really community driven and the community decides how to, you know, use the resources and comes up with the solutions. And there's been some movement towards some of that in small pieces in, um, you know, Minnesota and other parts of the country, but I think um, really more wholesale change of how do we really uh, find ways to share power, how do we have hold corporations accountable sharing power and how we hold state governments and federal governments for sharing power with the community so that they can come up with the solutions instead of someone coming and telling them what they need to do. Woo! Yes. Because yeah. I feel like that's true democracy, right? I think that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's governance by the people for the people, right? And right now we don't necessarily have those systems, we don't have that system set up, even though that was the founding thought of, you know, but we also have other issues while how our country was founded as well. Was as well. So, um, so Dr. Monique, did you have any um, thoughts as well? Yeah, you know, I think you know, Dr. Nate kind of got at it with the mention of power and this really this this need to shift power um, and to fight for that. And you know, today we were talking about um, how this is an inflection point, and you know, someone someone else pushed back and they said, "Yeah, but but it will it be that you know is all these companies that are saying Black Lives Matter right now, you know, what will, what will it be a month, two months from now? And will the power still be the same? And, you know, this is, this is a small example of, of how power kind of structures what we can and can't do. But, you know, I've noticed even in the past two weeks, you know, I write about racism almost on a daily basis. And, um, you know, I've been, you know, told to kind of tone it down, you know, more times than than not, you know, you know, be careful about how you write about that or be careful, you know, lead people there. Don't, you know, don't come right out and say it. You got to kind of walk them there and get them there. And within four days, everyone's like, yep, our society's racist. We're all going to become anti-racist. And, you know, and, and I've watched, you know, some of the people in power at my own institution, you know, have that flip um, within a week. Um, and it really, it strike it, it just, it, it, it brings home to me how the people who are in power so dictate what we're able to move forward and what we're not able to move forward. And so, um, I guess my, my call to action is what can, like, I would love to ask all of you, like, what are the, what are the few things that we can do to make sure that this moment is not just a moment, um, like has has history taught us anything about what turns a moment into a true movement? I I don't know enough about that, but I'd love to hear from you guys what what we can do to make sure that this that, that all these people in power who are speaking up all of a sudden um, stay true to that. So anyone we have a we have a few minutes left before um, before we end the conversation. So, but I think that's a great way to end the conversation. How do we, how do we, how do we ask power? How do we get, how do we take power? How do, and I think it's not about asking anymore, right? It's kind of like, how do you create a revolution to take that power back 
even in, even if it's in an institution, if it's in your own personal life with your family. Um, so any thoughts about that, Dr. Elizabeth? Sure. So I would like us to demand more. I'd like us to vision more boldly. I think a lot about the systems of care that support children. I want you all to know that there are um, countries in this world that do not have a juvenile justice system. And it's, it's not what we need to be doing with our kids. It's not the best approach for kids. And the issue is the tool of oppression and not having the other supports that kids need and these issues of power that we're talking about. Um, in terms of how to shift power, um, I read a great blog post by Barack Obama, who to me explained it really well. He said, peaceful protest and vote. Um, and, and politics is so frustrating right now because there's so much hatred. And, and for me, I even feel um, some skepticism, like, is the election going to be fair? Is it going to be rigged? Is there going to be voter suppression? So it's so easy to give up. Um, but I think it's so important, uh, peaceful protest and vote, and that we use our voices. And as pediatricians, that we encourage our families to use their voices. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jasmine? I would one one just immediate thing that comes to mind because I'm in the the trenches with getting this started right now. Um, encourage encourage all your hospital systems and medical well all your medical schools and especially hospitals associated with medical schools to start an actual chapter of the White Coats for Black Lives movement. A lot of you might have seen that on Friday there was like tons of hospitals and universities doing white coats for black lives and they did a moment of silence. But actually a lot of people don't know that white coats for black lives is an organization that was started about six years ago. It is actually a national chapter that has local chapters that they want to start and they have like a strategic plan. They put, they want to be more than just a hashtag and want to be associated with the actual chapter and then action taking place and putting pressure on your administration to actually act on what you're saying. So that's just one thing that I have in mind. Um, if you have a lot of people that are well-meaning, like try to get the ball rolling for things that'll be long lasting, make a five-year strategic plan, get committees started, start new chapters of something so that this won't just be a moment, but there will be lasting change. And Dr. Nate? Yeah, I, uh, this kind of dovetails with um, everything people are saying and, and kind of what I was talking about before is, you know, really trying to uh, make sure we take care of our house first. And, and when uh, we talk about uh, engaging uh, physicians and um, or just community members uh, through our framework with Minnesota Doctors for Health Equity, we talk about what you can do at an individual level. And so voting uh, certainly is one of those things and kind of um, uh, supporting uh, certain causes, whether you are actually showing up as a volunteer or financially supporting them. Um, uh, working within your community, so identifying, uh, you know, maybe you don't need to start something all over. There's already organizations that are doing the work and really could just use your support, your platform, um, uh, and, and support. Thank you for listening to What is Black Podcast. You can follow What is Black Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, please go to whatisblack.co 
to sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss any information and updates about upcoming episodes, blog posts, and events that we're hosting. We really appreciate your listening. And please share this episode with a friend and our previous episodes. You can subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and listen to What is Black wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until next time.